0: Father in heaven we thank you for this day where we are reminded in these songs that we have sung and soon to be reminded in your holy word that you moved heaven and earth to accomplish the great deed of our salvation. We lay like so many dead bones in the visions of old where your prophets saw this valley strewn with the chaos and the death of sin and the dismembered body parts had no life of themselves. And were there subject to the decaying influences of rot that would soon render them back to the dust of the earth. And the winds of the Spirit blew and connected sinew to bone and created flesh where none was and sent blood rushing through corpuscles again and sewed muscles onto that frame, breathed life and continence into the mind until whole human forms arose from the death and ashes unto the praise of your great name. And this resurrection is a picture of our spiritual health. We were dead in our trespasses and sins when Christ, through his Spirit's work, breathed upon the dry bones of our souls. They became a new being, a new creation. We, Lord, your people, uttered the first cries as newborn babes of faith, When you raised us from death unto life by the power of your holy word. And we recount your deeds in our salvation this day. Now as we look upon your scriptures, I pray that we would turn to them, Lord, with hearts that marvel at the revelation therein contained. That the story of redemption through the course of history might move us to acceptable worship. Worship that overflows with gratitude with reverence and awe because of your great work in this world and in our hearts. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Praise God. What a gift today to open the Scriptures. I pray that each one of us realize the value of this time we have together. Turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 77 and let us explore This song of Asaph today in our Psalm series. The title of this psalm or this message for you today is Unseen Footprints. This title comes from verse 19, where the works of the Lord, displayed in the poetic language of the author, are described as footprints yet unseen, or yet your footprints were unseen. We'll see in the course of our message today what the author means. This is the evidence of God's traveling through or passing through his world that in some sense sneak up on us or are invisible, but when spiritual eyes are open, become a manifest glory. Thus, the unseen footprints of God himself are one of the featured themes in Psalm 77 that actually undergird the spiritual and soul health of Asaph, its author. The aim of this morning's message is therefore to proclaim what Scripture prescribes as medicine for the soul. To proclaim, that is, again, what scripture, what scripture prescribes as medicine for the soul. And so with this introduction, and under this title, to the choir master according to Juduthan, a psalm of Asaph, would you stand with me if you're able, and let us hear the word of God. In reverence and fear. Psalm 77, 1. Here we have the holy word of God proclaimed. I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Verse 4. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Say, Law verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. With your arm you redeemed your children, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled, the clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I thought of many titles for today's message. Medicines for the Soul, Unseen Footprints, A Song in the Night. If this uh, song in the night phrase comes to us in verse 6, I said, let me remember my song in the night. In the course of Psalm 77, it seems that in the consolation that the author receives, In fact, this psalm could be a song in the night. What is a song in the night? A song in the night perhaps could be compared to a lullaby, a song that is sung to soothe and to reorient, to calm the soul, to bring the frayed uh, anxieties and emotions of an individual back into a peaceful state of being the kind of comfort that comes just before sleep rests upon the eyelids and we drift off to rest for the day. The kind of song in the night to which our author refers, however, is not the typical lullaby you might imagine, like on a wind-up toy that plays that mournful melody when your baby's sleeping, or a little children's song with lyrics about a cradle rocking back and forth. But a lullaby, scripturally, would include themes that give good reason for peace. The enemies of the Lord subdued. His absolute sovereignty exercised on behalf of His own. Salvation prepared against all odds for those who are lost in the wilderness. Thus a lullaby, biblically, a song in the night would be one that is triumphant. A triumphant lullaby, if you will. So there you have, perhaps another title for today's message, Triumphant Lullaby. Well, putting these ideas aside, let us note some of the application of this text for us today. The authors of Scripture, including Asaph himself, as we read today, were no strangers to mental anguish. David shares many times what would be described today, I'm sure, clinically diagnosed as depression, as does other authors of Scripture. Certainly no one would read Job and think, That he had it easy or he was of a stalwart frame of mind or he always exercised the power of positive thinking. Depression was no stranger to many of those in Scripture who went through deep valleys of mental anguish. Thus we see in the testimony of Scripture itself that this mental state of being that we wrestle with today is not a condition only recently identified and addressed by modern medicine or at least attempting to do so. Asaph prescribes... Medicine, if you will, for the distraught of heart, even as he offers a testimonial of its effects. He instructs us, turn to these things, if you are troubled of soul, and look at its effects. This is the basic shape of Psalm 77. Therefore, it is not my intent in this message to address the dangers or benefits of alternate means of treating mental health issues in this message, though these realities in our day are evidence enough of the usefulness of Psalm 77, not to mention many of the hymns in the Psalter. But it just stands to reason that these anecdotes are good examples of the sufficiency of Scripture. This week, well in recent weeks I should say I've received more than one phone call from individuals who are seeking such relief from symptoms that are remarkably similar to those that Asaph expresses. This kind of anguish of soul, this kind of desperation, these sleepless nights where the eyelids seem to be propped open by the anxieties and by the fears, by the concerns, and by the discouraging circumstances that plague the soul to the bitter end of of almost sanity itself and that hamper our body systems even in their natural course of actions and interrupt life-giving and rest-giving sleep so that we are up all night worrying and concerned. These are the kinds of situations that Asaph can, has experienced and can relate to. These anecdotes are a reminder, I, thus we see, of the sufficiency of The fact that human beings struggle to have the mental strength To deal with of our circumstances, is a reminder of the sufficiency of Scripture. If the Scripture addresses these things, then we should pay close attention. The Word of God speaks, after all, to every pertinent realm of our existence, and it does so with unparalleled efficacy. Note the sufficiency of Scripture not only means that the Bible has something to say about everything that's worth having something to say about. But when the Bible speaks to that thing, that proposition, that body of truth is the standard. It is the most powerful and effective means of addressing or dealing with that situation. So let us listen intently, therefore, to Asaph as if he were, let's say, a Holy Spirit-inspired counselor. Perhaps we will realize the value of his song for the dark night of our own souls. So let us consider Psalm 77 in three parts this morning. Our heading today will be rehabilitation of the soul in three stages. It seems to me that you could chart three stages of rehabilitation. That Asaph, the subject of the psalm in the first person most directly at least, but certainly a representative of God's people and others who can feel his pain. It seems that there are three stages that he works through in his psalm. Let's call the first one restlessness in verses 1 through 3. The second one I've labeled recalibration in verses 4 through 12. You could say reset. It's a reorientation of thinking and uh, the soul's affections to deal with this situation. And the third state, perhaps you could say, is reassurance. It's a return to the things most certain that ground his faith, that provide the foundation and anchor for his soul. So we see something of a progression here through three stages of the soul's rehabilitation. Restlessness, a recalibration, and then reassurance. Let's look more closely. Under restlessness, consider verses 1-3. through Asaph says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. We note there in the poetic structure, there is a repetition of those three words, aloud to God. The Psalms are steeped with this kind of parallelism. And as we hear verse 1, perhaps we hear something of an echo. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. It's almost as if the way he writes this music, he's mimicking an echo in a cavern of loneliness you're probably familiar with a movie where maybe a, a, a child, a young man, is chasing his dog into the woods, let's say, and he, he's lost. And he screams, cups his hands around his lips and hollers, hello, into the wilderness. And let's say he's in a mountainous area and you hear, hello, hello, hello. And that echo that recedes into the distance magnifies the circumstances and it suddenly makes you feel what he feels. There is no one to call back to him other than his own voice echoing back against the canyon walls. It's this feeling of abandonment, loneliness, isolation, helplessness. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, but notice this phrase, and he will hear me. There's a sort of conflict in the soul of Asaph. He knows that God will hear He knows that God hears in a sense, but his soul doesn't know it in every sense. In other words, he hasn't recalibrated his mental state, mental frame of mind, to the reality that God has heard his prayer. He is still stressed out. He is still in anguish. He is still battling this sadness he just can't shake. He goes on in verse 2. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. In his lonely echo of his existence, where he cries aloud to God, aloud to God, we find in verse 2 that this circumstance is not unrelenting. It's day in and day out. Again, in the poetry, we see Two references to both sides of a 24-hour period, day and night. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. What does this picture portray? Well, uh, every waking moment, and even while he tries to sleep, he cannot escape this sort of prison for the soul. We think of an individual in prison, and when he wakes up, the reality of the bars are a certain you know, proximity, distance from him, everywhere he looks. Perhaps the only thing worse than being in a solitary confinement situation, a prison cell where the window is barred and the walls are thick, is to have a prison in your own mind. Imagine those bars moving closer and closer and closer until they're in your soul. And in your, in your very thinking, in your brain, in your mental processing, in your emotions, in your affections, and wherever you go, you cannot escape this prison. There is no respite. There is no place to get peace day in and day out. He deals with this situation. He describes his hand as stretched out. It's a posture of desperate prayer. Think of little birds in a nest with their mouths wide open, little robins grasping for food they know nothing else all they do is with is stretch out their mouths and they pray as it were that their mother would fill them with life-giving food imagine those little robins in the nest and one day has passed and their little frail form is suffering from malnutrition And yet all they know to do is to open their beaks wide yet again. This is something of the picture. The arms stretch out in prayer. All you know to do, he says, without wearying. But this doesn't mean that his arm is strong. It simply means that he can never rest from reaching out to God because he doesn't feel the grasp on the other end. He is famished. He is starving. He is desperate. He is discouraged. So this is a state of restlessness that our author finds himself in. Verse 3 continues, and it starts to add a little bit of a reason perhaps why he's in this frame of soul, if you will. He says, When I remembered God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. And this almost seems contradictory, doesn't it? To where he eventually finds his reassurance. Because later in the text, he says in verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder your work, meditate on your mighty deeds. And as he does so, he lists many of the works of God in the exodus of his people. And in verse 20, he says, You led your flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. He finds peace in meditating and thinking about remembering the Lord. He finds respite, he finds a place of reassurance and revitalization at the altar of God. But not so in verse 3. In this early frame of mind, the restlessness, if you will, stage one of the soul's situation, he remembers God, and when he thinks about God, he moans. He winces in pain at the thought of God. When I meditate, my spirit faints he withers at the thought of the Lord and his works. There's a little extra reading I'd recommend to you. I'll post it on the website this week under further reading. An author, his name Edward Payson, I believe, he wrote quite a bit on this verse, really helpful things. It's interesting because the final source of healing for the psalmist at first appears to him or tastes to him bitter in his mouth. Perhaps an analogy would be the bitterness of medicine. When you take medicine that your body needs to recover, oftentimes it's bitter to the taste. It's everything you can do to choke it down. I know my dad makes a concoction. I can't remember all the ingredients, but it's something like habanero peppers sliced up, Uh, ginger, raw ginger sliced up. Basically, think of the hottest things that are good maybe in a little bit as a spice, but in their raw form all hashed up and then all thrown in this puree with uh, raw apple cider vinegar. By the time my dad is done making this stuff, it will bring tears to your eyes and sweat to your forehead if you just take a sip. It is the most revolting stuff. When you're standing in the convenience store, you know, what kind of soda would I choose? If that company sold its product, they would go out of business in the first week. However, the benefits of that concoction are extremely helpful. That medicine, though bitter to the taste, and though you want to spit it out when you first taste it, if you take it in, what begins to happen is it works against the... uh, germs and things whatever virus in your body whatever it does and begins to chase out and almost as a natural antibiotic sets you on a course for healing from say a cold or a flu or something like that you may be suffering from well oftentimes spiritual remedies are like that tonic that my dad makes it tastes so horrible at first they're bitter to the tongue they taste bad but as we avail ourselves of them, they begin to do a work within us. What can sometimes make the work and the nature and character of God a revolting thing to us at first? Well, the answer is very simple, our sin. And this is what Edward Payson expounds. He draws to our attention the fact that when we meet the lawgiver in all of his glorious and amazing, awesome power at Sinai, if we are a lawbreaker, then our response is to cover ourselves, to shrink back in terror, because we know that in our sin we deserve to be destroyed. Thus, as a sinner, without the assurance of our salvation, without meditating and taking great, taking great comfort in the balm of Gilead, the hope for our souls, the blood of Christ, the reminder of God in His perfect holiness is a fearful thought indeed. Speaking of His holiness, if we do not have a hatred for our sin, the holiness of God will seem like a blinding light, one that we want to shield ourselves from. And thus the meditation of the Lord is a bitter medicine at first indeed. If God is just, then just being in His presence reminds us that we deserve judgment. If God is omniscient, if He sees all things, if, if he knows all things, if he's omnis- his omniscience recall, or recalls to us that our secret offenses are seen by the Lord and nothing escapes his attention. And his immutability, the fact that he does not change, means that we must face this reality no matter what. We cannot escape the threat against us as sinners by running away. Avoiding the inevitable or pretending that God doesn't exist. So the bitter medicine of the law, of God revealed in all His glory, is something in our sin we first of all shrink from. This often contributes to our state of restlessness. The closer we get to God is where we need to be. But we need to remember that that closeness, that it comes at the price of a mediator. We will be judged and destroyed in our sin if we approach God, that line of untouchable perfection, unless atonement has been made. Thus, when the psalmist begins to remember the saving works of God and meditate on the atoning work of God, it has the opposite effect. He realizes that this medicine, the truth spoken to him that leads him to repentance, though at first tastes bitter, will lead to the health of his soul. So there we have our first stage, restlessness. Three stages in the rehabilitation of the soul. Coming into contact with the medicine, if you will. Approaching Christ, realizing that he is our medicine, as it were. And though the reality of our sin is a bitter bitter reality, at first in the presence of Almighty God, let us move to stage two and see the kind of recalibration that the gospel gives us. This comes to us in verses 4 through 12. In verses 4 through 12, there's actually three sets of five. This is interesting. In the center, there's five questions in verses 7 through 9. So let me read this, and then we'll see what we can draw from these words, this poetry and song. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. So there are five faculties, uh, references to the faculties of the soul in these three verses, four through six. Notice these words. Troubled, consider, remember, meditate, and search the eyelids of the psalmist asaph are propped open he's sleep deprived due to his soul's unrest he's troubled and he's considering these things he's remembering he's meditating and he's searching his the faculties of his soul are running wild but they haven't been brought into focus his mind is racing no doubt all the fearful Possibilities of what his future may hold are going over and over again in his mind as he thinks. No doubt he has remorse and regrets from past sins in his life that trouble him as he tries to sleep. Perhaps there's enemies all around him that are threatening to overrun the promised realm wherein the people of God were to find their safety and communion with God Almighty so he's troubled as he remembers and meditates and considers and searches these things. That is to say, his faculties are floundering. And that's the picture here. And this leads him to raise five questions. These are of great importance. And as you consider them, uh, I'd like to give you another cross-reference from the book of Exodus, chapter 34. Exodus 34. Before we turn there, consider these five questions. Verse 7. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Question mark. Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Are His promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up His compassion? Selah. Those are five questions. And it's interesting, and I think intentional, that these five questions line up virtually point by point with the self-revelation of God himself given to us and recorded for us in Exodus 34, 6. You may recall these words. Jonah recalled them in his book as well. The Lord passed before him, that is, the Lord passed before Moses, so the Lord is revealing himself to Moses, He's disclosing, he's showing his character, his nature, who he is, what Moses can expect, how God is to be known, or if you know God, you know the following. And then he says, the Lord himself says, The Lord, the Lord, that is Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Consider those five phrases again, or five descriptors. God is merciful. Secondly, He is gracious. Thirdly, slow to anger. Fourthly, abounding in steadfast love. And finally, faithful. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and faithful. This is our covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. Those who are in covenant with Him know Him by those five things. They can recalibrate their soul to the truth of that reality. If you are in Christ, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you know a God through Jesus who is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There is some consolation to be drawn that in spite of this amazing revelation, the prophets and even the psalmists of old sometimes doubted. In other words, there is hope for you and me if we sometimes doubt. You remember Jonah said similar language. He said, I knew that you were abounding in steadfast love, that you're merciful and gracious. And Jonah's uh, framing of these promises, this disclosure of the Lord, he says that you, uh, you uh, shrink back from uh, destruction, you're slow to anger, relenting, that is, from destruction. So Jonah was wrestling with these aspects of God's nature as well, in a slightly different way, as applied to his enemies. But then we turn back to Psalm 77, and we see the five burning questions in Asa's mind. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? No. The Lord is merciful. And he revealed himself directly and forever recorded in Scripture to Moses himself, this great prophet of old, and it is recorded for you in the Holy Scriptures that you may not forget. Recalibrate your soul, remembering that the Lord will not spurn forever those who are His, those who are in covenant with His. What does spurn mean? Disdainfully reject. God will not disdainfully reject. Get out of my face. The psalmist felt like he was the butt end of God's, uh, uh, of God's I- ignoring or despising him, uh, that kind of attitude. But in reality, his question was unfounded. The Lord will not spurn his own. He is always and ever merciful for those who are under the atoning blood sprinkled upon the mercy seat. Second question, has his steadfast love forever ceased? No, his steadfast love endures forever. Are his promises at an end for all time? No, our Lord is relenting from disaster and he is gracious to us. Has God forgotten to be gracious? No, we find in the confession of God himself that he is gracious. Has he shut up his compassion in his anger? No, our God is slow to anger. Again, abounding in steadfast love. So when the psalmist's faculties were floundering and these five questions were raised, he he needed to turn to the Word of God to reset, to recalibrate his thinking according to that which was actually true and certain, who God was. And in the next three verses, we begin to see the effects of this recalibration. Again, there's five references Five references to his mental faculties in this section as well. And notice how reassurance begins to rush into his soul. Verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. So here he is in this recalibrating exercise. He's making his appeal. He's remembering twice. He's pondering and he's meditating on the following things. The years of the right hand of the Lord Most High, the deeds of the Lord, the wonders of old, of all God's works, of all his mighty deeds. One truth that we can, that we can hang on to as a precious treasure, as an unfailing reality from Psalm 77, is when God does not work immediately in our situation the way that we'd prefer, that there is every bit as much reassurance to draw from the way He has worked in history. If you feel like you need deliverance right now, and your soul is struggling to have joy, that it it seems like your prayers are unheard, and the beautiful reality of your Christian life is something of a distant memory under these circumstances, reassurance for your soul and recalibration is only a remembrance an acknowledgement of God's works through covenant history away. Turn to Him. How selfish is it of us to draw reassurance and faith only from the experiences that we have. We need to confess that as sin, brothers and sisters. If we say to our souls, ourselves, I won't be happy until God intervenes in this way in my life, that makes us. That attitude betrays a a self-centeredness as if the universe was on the wrong footing until God answers our prayer the way we prefer in the timing we demand right now or whenever it is. In order to recalibrate this sort of intrinsic spiritual selfishness that we wrestle with, draw reassurance from the way God answered prayers of old. Look to the way that He saved Nineveh when you despair over the state of our culture today. When you wrestle with your own sins and wish that deliverance was nigh, remember how He brought his people who were 430 years or so in slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea unto the promised land. When you feel that God is a distant reality and that you can't really relate to him just now because I don't feel the same happiness that I once enjoyed in the courts of praise and the gathered assembly in, the worship, in worship with his people. Remember the day that God revealed himself to Moses a representative of all the people of God, and said, I am gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. All my covenant own. Experience the reality of my love, my concern, my care, and my slowness to anger, and my promises. And be encouraged, be strengthened, and let your soul receive that life giving medicine an antibody against the venom of self-centeredness and let it rush through you and exercise all of that poison and instead fill you with the joy from the wellspring of spiritual life forever available in these pages of Scripture. Finally this morning, considering the rehabilitation of the soul in three stages, we've considered the candid restlessness that Asaph admits, We've seen how he recalibrates his thinking according to the word of God. And finally, there is a reassurance that floods into his soul. And this comes with some specific remembrances. But it begins in verses 13-15 through with words of acclamation. What is acclamation? It's ascribing to the Lord. It's proclaiming. It's stating the truth to the Lord in worship of His greatness. Uh, Last week in our family devotions, or two weeks ago, I had a question I asked the kids each night. What makes God awesome? What makes God awesome? Well, that's a simple way to phrase a question for your child. And if he or she answers from something from Scripture, what are they doing? They're acclaiming the Lord. They're extolling Him. They're magnifying Him. God is awesome because He led the people By a pillar of fire at night when they were in the wilderness. God is awesome because he sent a fish to swallow Jonah to save him from drowning. God is awesome because he wrote the Bible for us to read that tells us the way of salvation. God is awesome. I'm giving you some of the answers from my household. God is awesome because he created the whole world. God is awesome because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. There's a childlikeness about that, but it is food for the soul. It is rich, valuable, invaluable, in fact, medicine for you. Simply proclaiming, reminding yourself why God is awesome. Notice how Asaph does this in verse 13. Your way, O God, is holy. Well, God is great, like our God. Our God is better than your God. I mean, you can almost hear a childlike faith celebrating how awesome my heavenly father is. And there's a certain health for the soul in confessing these things. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? Your gods are stupid. They're not gods at all. My God created the world and all that is in it. My God created a way of salvation. My God uses even the sin of his enemies like a weapon against them. My God ransoms me from spiritual darkness through the resurrecting life of his Holy Spirit. Verse 14, you are the God who works wonders. A God hardened Pharaoh's heart for the very purpose of showing off his power. I'm going to make this guy not let you go so that I can do all kinds of cool stuff in his country. I'm going to send insects to swarm over everybody. I'm going to darken the sun. I'm going to turn this picture of life, you know, the people practically worship the Nile River into a stream of blood by the touch of my sovereign finger. I'm going to... Slay every one of the firstborn, the future generational hope of this entire civilization, we snuffed out in a moment. I am going to display my wonders. Now, if you were an Israelite at that time and God was doing these things, and your father runs back to your little hut or what have you at the end of the day and says, Honey, did you hear the news? Kids, gather around. There's frogs everywhere. Some places I can't even see the ground. But daddy, there's no frogs here. Why? God has protected the land of Goshen. We are his special people. But those who will not bow before him, he can turn his creatures against them and overrun the greatest kingdom in the earth with so many frogs that it's driving even Pharaoh himself insane. If you were there at that time, you can sense, you can feel... How awesome these wonders would have been. Daddy, why is the sun so dark today? Because the one who made the sun has put a shield over it just for now because there are those who don't think that he is God and he is proving that he is. The point of Psalm 77 is that those wonders are ever-present and just as ready for us to appreciate as they were for that generation in Goshen. Turn to the Scriptures. Open up your ears and eyes to the revelation of God's Word revealed. It's as certain, uh, recorded here, it's as certain as it happened at that time. And there is a balm for the soul, is medicine for the spirit. And in giving God these kind of acclamations, we find a reassurance rushing into us beyond what we would otherwise experience. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might. Among the peoples, you with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Under reassurance, now we see a specific occasion to which Asaph refers. See if you can figure out the primary event that he's talking about as we read in verses 16 through 19. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. Can you guess the event that he is talking about, singing about in these words? If you answered the Exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea, you would be correct. However, there's a water judgment described here, and it could extend even perhaps to the great flood. The footsteps of the Lord were unseen as far as we might expect footprints from a literal human being. But nevertheless, the evidence of the Lord was unmistakable. Where else in recorded history, given the laws of physics that God himself ordained, has a sea ever split and stood in two heaps, to make a pathway of dry land for his people to escape. And then that water becomes an instrument of judgment, collapsing and drowning all their enemies. So not so much as one messenger is spared to run back a Pharaoh that was strapped into those chariots with the superior war machine, biting at the heels of God's people crossing in to the promised land. This is the event that stirs the emotions that recalibrates the thinking and opens up the floodgates of reassurance and chases the depression, chases the anxiety, and chases the fear out of the soul of Asaph. If God can make a way through the water, can he not make a way through my experience? If God can crash those same uh, floods upon the heads of the enemies of my forefathers and our forefathers in the faith, can he not? Crash, judgment upon the heads of his and my enemies even now? Of course he can. A way was made through the sea, and it was his path, the Lord's path, through the great waters. And though his footprints are at times unseen, the eyes of the Spirit can open up through these avenues to witness the amazing power of God. Why this occasion? This occasion is often referred to in Scripture because it is something of an event oracle. I've used that term before. It's an event that God designed in the history of His people to speak His Word, an event oracle. In Exodus 12, in your own time, you can go back and review, and you'll find this to be the case, even from your memory. In Exodus 12, what's the command? The Passover. The Passover feast. God is about to deliver you. So this is a ceremony so that you never forget. This is a time of celebration, so you remember this event oracle. There wasn't a feast for every miracle. There wasn't a feast agreed for every miracle that God did. There wasn't a time of celebration and careful remembrance in the same way set up for everything that God did, but there was for the Exodus. There was for the great deliverance through the Red Sea. Why? Because it was an event oracle, it was preaching the gospel in circumstances. It was, another phrase, a signature act of redemption. A signature act of redemption. This is something that speaks to God's power to save. Recall this moment in redemptive history because it is meaningful. We celebrated communion last week. Communion exists. It's an amended Passover, if you will, where the delivering experience of the people of God by His grace uh, through the Red Sea unto the Promised Land is now fulfilled in Christ in His body and blood. So in a sense, we still celebrate the Passover when we celebrate at the Lord's table here. Why? Because these moments to which Asaph refers were signature acts of redemption. It was an event oracle. It was a moment in history that was to be etched upon the soul of all believers for all time as proof positive that God saves. Last week in Hebrews 12, we talked about The unshakable things versus the shakable things. If we invest our reassurance in shakable things, like will we be alive tomorrow and why can't I kick this asthma during allergy season? I fight that one. Or or shakable things like a loved one is struggling from a debilitating illness or it seems like I just can't get a break in, uh, in my career advancement, whatever it might be. If we invest our assurance in these types of things, even if we experience some success in any of them at any given time, it is a shakable investment. The message of Hebrews from Haggai was, invest your time, tie your present resolve to future realities, invest in the unshakable kingdom. When you recall what God did to deliver his people, and when you remember what Christ did to deliver us, you're investing assurance and reassurance in the unshakable things. You're investing in future glories. God will deliver his people. He will bring them through the dark moments and days and valleys of their soul. The valley of the shadow of death will soon give way to fields of glorious, uh, fields of glorious provision in heaven eternal, even if every moment on this life was one of persecution and mental anguish. And this is the message. The final verse is one of great consolation. Verse 20, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. What a fitting way to close this psalm. We've moved from a God who moves heaven and earth and strikes lightning upon the heads of his enemies and collapses floodwaters upon them and makes a way through the sea. And we've moved from the trying all night long anxiety sessions of this what would appear a manic depressive individual who is troubled beyond words and can't find respite for his soul, uh, peace anywhere. We've moved from these kinds of conditions of uh, judgment on the heads of enemies and the power of God manifestly so and the frame of mind which would get us all tied up into knots to this closing verse of comfort in knowing that the Lord is our shepherd and we, therefore, shall not want, as Psalm 23 says, he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death indeed, with his comforting rod and staff, just like he led his people like a flock in Psalm 77:20, by the hand of Moses and Aaron. It reminds us of what Pastor Stokes uh, revealed to us. It showed us from Isaiah 40, does it not, that the Lord is both king and shepherd. He has unfathomable power in his scepter, in his throne, in his decree, in his word, in his law. And he has unfathomable concern and care and comfort and compassion on his little sheep, such that he will cradle them in his bosom, even as his unseen steps cross through redemptive history, redeeming for himself a people. Let me, ask, let me close with this question. What is the signature act of redemption? that further biblical revelation prescribes as medicine for our souls. Remember the aim of this message, to proclaim what scripture prescribes as medicine for the soul? We've touched upon it already, but what is the signature act of redemption that further biblical revelation in the New Testament prescribes as medicine for our souls? Well, you know it as well as I. It is the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary, the Lamb of God slain for our sins, resurrected and now ruling and reigning and always making intercession for us these are the moments recorded in matthew 26 26 through 28 where jesus proclaims that his body and his blood is the fulfillment of the passover and here in this act he forever fulfills and amends the passover celebration such that the bread and the cup now commemorate his body and blood shed for the healing of our souls And although we may not experience the miraculous work of God in signs and wonders shaking heaven and earth right now, the prescribed means and medicine for our souls, if we are ever discouraged, is to look back. And this is why we celebrate communion. It is a memorial moment and a feast for us to look back upon the medicines of the soul. And even when they taste bitter or it seems routine, realize that they are healthy that they will work into you the kind of reassurance that no other alternative can give. All others lead to death, yet the body and blood of Christ leads to life. So let us recalibrate, taking a lesson from Asaph, let us recalibrate our faculties to behold the significance of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, the signature act of all redemption. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have not left us to our own devices. You have not even left us to each other for it is little help, Lord Jesus, if we're all in the same prison to rely on the goodwill of neighbors for our hope eternal. We are truly all lost and condemned in our sin. There is none righteous, not one. Together, Lord, we are condemned and justly so unless a miracle takes place. In the signature act of redemption of Christ's body and blood broken and shed on Calvary, we find absolute reassurance for every malady of the soul. And so I pray for grace to take that medicine, that if any suffer in this room with the despair that Asaph could relate to, that they would look upon Christ and Him crucified, that they would more readily and more often, Lord Jesus, turn to the message of your holy word. Give us grace, Lord, not only to turn here, but also to proclaim, to lift up our acclamations of your great works through history. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have opened our eyes to see your otherwise unseen footprints. And let us walk, therefore, Lord Jesus, in the footsteps that you have prepared for us to walk in, Unto the praise of your great name. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.